0: this evening from Isaiah chapter 53, um, which is on page 731 of your Pew Bibles. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken.
1: Um, Our second reading for tonight is from Galatians, uh, starting in chapter uh, 25, at verse 25, and we're going to go through to chapter 6, verse 5. It's on page 1155. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself, without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load."
2: Well, good evening. As Matt mentioned um, we're coming to the end of Galatians. In fact, we've got one more week to go. But if you've missed out on what Mike and Matt have been preaching on in the last three weeks, please go back and listen to them because that just some fantastic wisdom as they've unpacked uh, Galatians 5 and 6. One of the things we talked about last week was the fruits of the Spirit. And I love the point that Matt was making that Uh, and that was that the idea of fruits of the Spirit need to be in the context of Christian community. And so if you're going to have fruits of the Spirit, uh, you're going to see things like patience. And you don't learn patience unless you have to be patient with someone and patient with someone in a Christian community. You don't learn self-control until you realize actually you don't have self-control and therefore you need self-control. You don't learn kindness until lest you need to show kindness. And Christian community is about those things, about the fruits of the Spirit and experiencing that in life together. And so as we come to this particular passage, I think Paul is continuing to help us think through what does it mean to live a gospel-free life in the context of community. And he has a particular thought in mind. And his thought is around this idea. Mature Christians... Restore those who have fallen into sin. Mature Christians, restore those who have fallen into sin. That's what you do when you're a gospel-free community. Let me pray as we continue. Father God, we thank you and praise you for the great privilege we have of coming to your word this evening. We ask that as we look at this together, that you might help us understand what it is you're saying to us, that our lives might be transformed and that we may be more like you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, As we come to this particular passage this evening, what we're going to do is look at it in three different ways and think about what it does it mean to live in Christian community, particularly as mature Christians, but in terms of having relationships in step with the Spirit. You might see there in Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 24, we read these words. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with all its passions and desires, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And so Paul wants to now address what does that mean in terms of us keeping in step with the Spirit. Well, let's turn to the first part of this passage and start exploring together what keeping in step with the Spirit looks like in the context of community. He starts off by saying this, Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. I wonder how many of you uh, this last week have used the term conceited. That person is conceited. I don't actually remember using that term very often, the thought of being conceited. So what does actually conceited mean? What does it mean to not be conceited? Well, conceited is to do with the idea of glory, Um, the idea of vain glory. When you are conceited, you want glory for yourself. Uh, you want to be a peers if you have all the glory. In fact, some people might say in a Christian context, being con- when you're conceited, you are a glory thief. Uh, because what you're doing is you're suggesting that you should be the center of attention, not Jesus. And so when you're conceited, you draw the attention away from Jesus and you put it onto yourself. Or someone else has suggested it's a bit like photobombing. You know, when someone jumps in, into the photo like that and takes all the attention away from what should be. Being conceited is a bit like being a photo bomber. What's interesting about this idea of conceit, though, is that Paul describes two kinds of behavior that come as a result of being conceited. Did you notice that? He says, conceited involves provoking and envying one another. So we have this idea of honor and seeking honor for ourselves. What does it mean that we provoke people? Well, to provoke someone is to take the stance that you're above them, that you're somehow superior to them, that you can actually look down on them. And so if you're conceited, you might look at another person and say, I'm better than you are, and therefore I can provoke you or I can tell you what to do. Now, I guess we're more familiar with that notion of conceited and what that looks like and how that works, the idea of provoking others and standing over others. But Paul has another concept here, which is a little bit of a surprise, and that's the notion of envying. Now, the, the, the stance of a, a someone who's envying is that stance where you're feeling inferior, where you look up to someone else and you want what they have. And what you're doing there is you're saying, as I look up to that person, I want what they have. I want their glory, if you like. Now, what's similar about the provoking and the envying is it makes you the center of attention. And therefore, it's that notion of conceit. You're making yourself the person above others or below others, but you're not actually pointing people to Jesus. And Paul says, we are not to become conceited and to provoke and envy other people. But why on earth would he say that? What? what why is he saying this in the context of talking about relationships and uh, Christian community meeting together? Well, he has something else to tell us about the way we should relate with one another, and we see that in the following verses, when he says this. When he's thinking about relationships in step with the Spirit, he says, brothers and sisters. Notice uh, the the term brothers and sisters there. It's family. Uh, It's close. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Now, I take it the reason that we need to watch ourselves and... Uh, although we may be tempted, is the idea we may fall into the same kind of sinfulness that a person um, is engaged in. Or perhaps we may be tempted to provoke or to envy, to be conceited in the way we approach someone else. And so we need to examine our own hearts. But, But what Paul says here is interesting. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin... Now you might think of some kind of major thing that's going on and it could be that Paul is referring to some significant things that are taking place in people's lives. Now there's often two ways this works out. Sometimes there's a significant sin in someone's life where they're persistently doing something and they're persistently ignoring what God has called them to do differently. And so they persist in the way that they go about their sinfulness. I don't think Paul is referring to that kind of sinfulness in this case. What he's referring to is someone who's caught. Uh, the, the sense here is that it's a person who's tripped over. They're running the race and something's caught them and tripped them up and they've fallen over. Now, maybe that they recognize that they've fallen over and they need some help with that, or maybe they, they don't quite recognize it, but they've they just found themselves in the spot where actually they're doing things that they know Christians shouldn't do. So perhaps it's a situation at work where you've been asked to write a report and that report is going to get you a contract and, well, you've actually been a fairly generous with the truth. In fact, the report reflects a lie. And at the end of the report, when you've handed it in, you, you, you know that you've been caught up. You know that actually what you've submitted is not the truth. And you've been caught. You've, you've tripped over. Or perhaps it's another situation where you've recognised that actually the way you pay the tax man means that you've been stealing from the tax man. And you've kind of gone right to the edge of what's acceptable. And you've thought, oh, actually, mm, maybe, just maybe I've been caught up in something here. And of course there's a myriad of other ways that this can happen. And Paul is saying to those in Galatia, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught, if someone falls over in this sense, you who live by the Spirit should restore them. Now, and restore them gently. Now, I guess uh, that picture of being restored gently feels a bit like this, you know, putting your arm around someone and saying, look, uh, I notice that you've tripped over and I notice that things have gone awry and I notice that Actually, there's something happening in your life. Can we talk about it and can we pray together and move forward like that? And of course, that's great. That's fantastic if that is happening. But the kind of picture I think Paul is painting here is something a bit bigger than that. Uh, Actually, something a bit more painful than that. This notion of restore means putting things back in their right place and was frequently used for the idea of putting arms back in sockets after they've been dislocated. Now, you can see the picture there. They're smiling together. It's a beautiful picture of a an no, arm going back into a socket and just delightful. Of course, when I looked for pictures on the internet and YouTube videos, they were nothing like that. I thought I'd save you from seeing the real life stuff. But of course, what happens with that is that when you restore an arm to its socket, it's actually painful. But at the end of it, it's restored. It's in its right place. Now, I think for us, this is a pretty significant challenge. uh, To think about how do we restore one another, those who live by the Spirit, those who are mature in the Spirit, how do we restore one another gently, humbly, when it involves perhaps some pain? And one of the difficulties we have is we're so adverse to the idea of bringing pain into other people's lives. We have a culture which loves pleasure. And the thought that we might cause pain to someone else is just something that seems an anathema. And I see it often in the conversations that I have with people, say, wandering around the graveyard, and they're talking about various behaviours and things that people do, and they say things like this. It's okay if it doesn't hurt anyone because, actually, we don't want to hurt anyone. And that makes sense. I kind of agree. I don't particularly want to hurt people either. On the other hand, there's something problematic with that, isn't there? If you're going to have your shoulder restored and put back in its socket, your arm put back in its socket, it's actually going to be painful for a moment. If a surgeon is going to use his healing hands to help you get better, and to restore you to good health, actually, it's going to involve some pain. If a psychologist is going to sit down with you and help you deal with some issues in your own life, sometimes that's actually going to cause pain. You're going to have to face some things about yourself and deal with those issues. So it actually doesn't make sense that you can restore someone without some sense of pain. Now, of course, we don't want to inflict pain, but there is a sense in which restoring is complicated and difficult. What this makes this even more complicated is in our context, we're so individualistic. It's like what I do is my business. The way I act is my business. And if someone should come to us and say, I'm actually not sure about that, Have you been caught up in some sinful behavior? Our minds go to the idea of, well, you're just standing over me. You're provoking me. You're being moralistic in the way that you've approached me. And it's complicated because it can sound moralistic. And particularly if you don't understand the goodness of God's grace, having someone tell you that actually the way you're approaching things is not godly, can sound very moralistic. But you notice what Paul has been saying all the way through this. He's saying to yourselves, watch yourselves. Don't be conceited. And for the Christian person, the significant thing is that when you restore someone like this, you're not saying you're better than they are. That would be conceited. You're not saying that you're the, you're somehow morally more um, able to cope with life, that you don't sin somehow. No, you're a brother or a sister walking the same journey together, recognizing that you need each other on this journey. What you also notice about this is that this. In this instance, Paul is not calling leaders to do this. Elsewhere he does, and he asks leaders to step in in particular circumstances. In this instance, however, he's calling us as God's people as we walk together in the Spirit to do this with one another. To spend time with one another, to listen to one another, but to restore each other gently and sometimes to say the things that are difficult to one another because of what God has done for us in Christ. Sometimes our silence is really not helping. Uh, This is a quote from Marzia Butterfield. Um, She is writing a book on hospitality. Kind of an interesting thing to put in a book on hospitality. But this is what she says. We are not extending grace to people when we encourage them to sin against God. When we try to be more merciful than God, we put a millstone around the other person's neck. Sometimes we think we're being merciful by not commenting on something or not saying anything. But actually, we're not being merciful at all. We're actually not being loving at all. We're condemning a person to their ways in which go against what God has called them to be or to do. And so Paul is reminding us to restore one another gently. It's in that context he then goes on to talk about the idea of carrying each other's burdens. Now in this next section, there seems to be a little bit of a contradiction. Uh, You notice there at the end of the paragraph, it says this, for each of you should carry their own load. So on one hand, he says at the beginning, Carry each other's burdens, and this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. And then by the end of the paragraph, he's saying, each of you should carry their own load. What is Paul talking about here? Loads, and burdens, and what is going on here? Well, I think that second paragraph helps us give an insight into the way we are to measure ourselves and to understand ourselves. This concept of uh, a load is like a backpack. What Paul is suggesting here is that each one of us have our own backpack. And in that backpack, we have our experiences, our weaknesses, our strengths, the things that we struggle with, the things that we should be doing, the things that we shouldn't be doing, and they're our responsibility. We need to take responsibility for the things that we do and we say, and the way that we act. We have been given a load to bear, to carry. Now, the truth is, as you look around with friends and family and others that you know, different people seem to have different loads. Some people seem to have really, really heavy loads. And that should be taken into context as we walk alongside each other. But each person is responsible for their own load. Uh, Some of you will know of that book. I hate recommending it because it always sounds like I'm having a go at someone. I'm not intending to. The book is called Grow Yourself Up uh, by Jenny Brown. It's an excellent book, but it helps you take responsibility for your own feelings and behavior and helps you think through what does that mean in my interactions with other people. And I think Paul is reminding us of that as he speaks here. He's saying, take responsibility for your own load. And that's why he's also saying these words. If anyone thinks there's something but they're not, they deceive themselves. So that's back to the whole notion of conceit. Each one of you should test your own actions. And he says something really interesting. Then they can take pride in themselves. (coughs) alone. without comparing themselves to someone else. (coughs) In other words, if you have a load and you're carrying it and you notice a change and you see that change, not by comparing yourself to other people, but by noticing the way that you've changed under God's grace, then you can take pride in that. That's exciting. Can someone grab me a glass of water? That's tremendous, isn't it? So, for example, if if I've been having trouble with patience, and then after a year I notice that as I've been talking with people and had to be patient with people in my small group or in my church or with my friends, and I've grown in that patience and I've seen God's grace at work in me, and I've seen the fact that I'm now more patient, that's a beautiful moment of celebration, A thanksgiving to God. Oh, God, thank you so much for helping me change in those ways. Thanks, Matt. Thank you so much for helping me change in those ways. Or perhaps it's to do with joy. Beginning of the year, you think, oh, I'm not really joyful. Okay, I need to take responsibility. I need to think about that. How am I going to become more joyful? And at the end of the year you go, oh, I'm actually more joyful. Isn't that amazing what God has been doing? In my life, I think that's what Paul is talking about there, where he talks about having your own backpack and measuring things correctly. But what he's also saying is, carry each other's burdens, and in that way, you will fulfil the law of Christ. Now, the law of Christ that he's referring to is something that he's referred back to, uh, referred to in Galatians chapter four, uh, five, verse fourteen. He said, "The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command." Love your neighbor as yourself. And so I think what Paul is talking about here as he talks about this idea of carrying one another's burdens is love. Loving one another. But what else do you notice about that idea of carrying one another's burdens? Well, the truth is, if you're going to carry someone's burden, you need to be close to them. You see, I can't carry someone's burden if they're way down there because I can't actually reach their burden. I can't actually be with them. I need to almost stand in their shoes if I'm going to carry a burden with them, if I'm going to have to help them deal with something in their life, particularly if I'm going to have to help them deal with something that they need to be restored about, some sinful action in their life. If I'm going to carry that burden with them, I'm going to have to be really close and intimate. I'm going to have to know them well. I'm going to have to understand what it is to walk in their shoes. Martin Luther puts it this way Christians must have strong shoulders and mighty bones that they may bear flesh that is the weakness of their brethren. The only way you get good, the only way you have strong bones is by bearing load. That's true, isn't it? You've got to do exercise, you've got to do load bearing exercises to develop strong bones. The only way you can have strong bones as a Christian as you support other people and carry them is to do it. To walk beside them, bear with them, restore them, encourage them, build them up. And so Paul is calling us to an extraordinary life in which we are able to walk together with one another, where it's each of our responsibilities to walk together with one another, to support each other, and to see each other grow in the ways that we are in relationships so that we are walking in step with the Spirit. I want to share with you an example of where I've seen this happen. I've shared uh, part of this example with you previously, but I think it's a great illustration of what we're talking about this evening. A number of years ago, I was in a church uh, where there were some youth leaders, some great youth leaders. Gee, they were fantastic youth leaders. And um, they started going out together, which was really delightful. Um, But soon, after a little while, it became evident that they were actually sleeping together. Um, The youth minister sat down with them and said, "Um, are you aware that that's not what Christian leaders should be doing um, before they're married? And they said, yes, we've been trapped. We've stumbled, we've fallen. We recognize that we're doing the wrong thing and we would like to change that. And so they sat down together and worked out some strategies for the way forward and what they might do and how they might be restored. Over a period of time, it became evident that, that wasn't working because uh, um, one of them became pregnant. Now, these two leaders were members of significant families within the church. And so you can imagine the conversations that could have taken place. But actually what happened is everybody pulled together to carry a burden together. There was a wedding that was arranged. The parents were supported and prayed with. Um, The couple were supported and prayed with. The couple remarkably, actually, just astounding, actually, they'd made the decision themselves. uh, No one forced them to do it in any sense. They made the decisions themselves to get up in front of their congregation in the evening, and say to their congregation, we've done the wrong thing, and we want to acknowledge before you we've done the wrong thing, and we ask for your forgiveness and for your support. You can imagine that evening was just full of tears and joy and beautiful love being showed by everybody in that congregation. As the wedding approached, the most beautiful thing in terms of caring and carrying one another's burdens was that the whole church, the whole congregation got involved in the reception and providing the wedding, you know, whether it was the decorations or whether it was the food or whether it was the music. And I can remember sitting there on the day and just being so joyful at what God had done at that moment with us as a congregation and us as a church as we'd come together and walked together to carry these burdens together. Just a beautiful, beautiful beautiful moment. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we as a church we're able to help each other and love each other so much that way that when a sister or brother starts to move off, we're able to restore them gently to be that kind of family where we're looking out for one another, where we care for one another, where we, we speak with one another when we notice things are going on. Now, no, I know what I'm asking here is a large thing, is a big thing, and I know that I find it difficult to do, as I speak with people, and I know I find it difficult when people speak with me. I, I completely understand this is not an easy thing. And so it's important to remember that Jesus has gone before us in this context. One of the fascinating things about this passage is what, the way Paul uses particular words. How these burdens are carried. The word that he uses is a word that is used uh, in Matthew. When Jesus has been healing uh, a lot of people, um, this is the conclusion. When the evening came, many of them who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. Now, you heard that in our Isaiah 53 reading, that great Old Testament passage, where we hear of that suffering servant, the figure who comes uh, to represent God's people to gain their salvation by suffering in our place. And ultimately, we see in places like Peter, uh, we hear words like this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And of course, that's a beautiful thing to remember when we're restoring one another uh, to God's ways, where we're leading one another And walking in spirit together. But here he's saying something slightly different, I think. Here he's reminding us that when we come together, when we carry one another's burdens, we're somehow joined in what Jesus was doing when he was going to the cross and taking our sicknesses and infirmities and diseases to the cross. And I think what that is happening there is there's a picture of a restoration, a picture of a new day when all those things will be dealt with, that those things that have been caused by the, the sin in our world are taken to the cross and all things are restored and become new. And so I think the beautiful picture we have here is as we entrust ourselves to Jesus, As we entrust ourselves to his call to restore one another, somehow we are pointing forward to that beautiful day of restoration when all things will be made new. And because of that, we know we can entrust ourselves to Jesus who has gone before us, who already knows what it is to suffer, who already knows what it is to restore those who are brokenhearted, who already knows what it is to take up our infirmities and bear our diseases. Can I invite us to be that kind of community that walks beside each other, a gospel-free community that leads spirit-empowered lives, characterized by love, living that out in concrete expressions, keeping in step with the spirit, carrying one another's burdens, gently restoring each other.